Father, as we look at the word which you have placed before us, we're grateful for the eyes uh, that can see and for the understanding that you have given to us through the Holy Spirit who interprets the word of God to our hearts. We're thankful, Lord, that we do not hold a book uh, like other books, but one that has the stamp of God as the very word of God. We ask, Lord, that it will become living and powerful as we study it and as we understand it. And, Father, that we will be found obedient to the written word. And, Father, we will recognize that it is the <clears throat> supreme authority in our lives as the Spirit of God brings us understanding. And so we commit this class time to you and pray as we look at this uh, rather difficult passage that you will give us the understanding and the truths that will help us from our study. In Christ's name, amen. Genesis 38, I'd like to uh, begin reading at verse 12. Now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adolamite. And it was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Inaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that, I may that you may come in to me? He said, Therefore, I will send you a kid from the flock. She said, moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. Last week we looked at the first 11 verses of this chapter, and they, they were not much better, as you well know as we look through that particular passage of Scripture. And we saw the hand of God obviously present uh, in bringing about the events there. In the 11th verse, we saw that uh, Judah, after suffering the loss of his two older sons, uh, after they were married to the same woman, that is, the first had been married to her, then he died, and the second was married to her as, a, as an act of leveret marriage, to, to raise up seed to the older son, he died too. And this left a situation where there was a younger son left, the only son that, Tuda, that Judah still had. And he was a little bit young to get married. So what he told Tamar was, go back and live with your father. You are in, under contract to marry my youngest son, but it's too soon, he's too young. Let's wait till he's old enough, which I, I think would have been at the maximum, probably three years at this point, for her to wait until... Uh, that event would take place. <clears throat> and obviously, uh, as we come into this particular uh, section, Judah had not done that. Uh, the, the waiting period had expired, and uh, Tamar began to wonder why Judah had not given her to Shelah as his wife, as had been promised. After all, this was the word of Judah, that this would happen. And word in those days was far more important than word is today. You know, we often give our word to do something with no intention. <coughs> To fulfill. I hope that's not true of us as believers, but it's true in our society. 
I was listening this morning to uh, Lois was had the radio on and was listening to um, Dr. Erwin Lutzer, and he was quoting from a book which he had recently uh, read, which said that according to a survey made, 91% of Americans say they lie on a regular basis. And most of those said that they could not get through a single day without at least telling one lie. That they lie on a regular basis. You know, what's sad about that is if 91% is really true, this means a lot of Christians also lie, or at least people who profess to be Christians. Uh, because it's estimated that at least 10%, if not more, of the American population is evangelical. And of course, one-third claims to be born again, according to a Gallup poll. You now, you know, whatever polls tell us, uh, they give us at least some idea of the way people are thinking. And 91% and claim that they lie on a regular basis, and it's just part of the way we live. It's accepted as a, as a normal thing. But in the day we're talking about, for a man to give his word... In, in that this woman shall be married to his son was in effect a contract. It was unwritten, but it was nevertheless a contract. And therefore, in fact, we'll see later on that it was still assumed to be a contract because she could have paid with her life for this contract that Judah was not even fulfilling. It, it seems that on Judah's part, it may have been that he was hoping that by this delay that maybe Tamar would be found by somebody else and she'd come and request that a, uh, you know, that the contract be voided and that she could marry someone else and then Judah probably would have willingly done that because he felt that somehow she was linked to the death of his two older sons. Well, the whole situation came to a head here with the death of Judah's wife. We're not told in this passage why Bathsheba died, the daughter of Shua. She... Probably was not terribly old. Uh, you know, I, I would think just reading from the passage and understanding a little bit about the culture of that day, she probably wasn't much over 40, which was pretty young to die from natural causes, although obviously, you know, disease can take a person at any time. But uh, I, I really think that probably what happened here was God removed her because she was a continuing evil influence upon Judah. God knew his plan for Judah. And this woman was not a good influence uh, upon him. And so it could be, it's not said that, so I'm just interpreting in between the lines here, that uh, she was removed for that reason. Whatever the case, Judah mourned for her. And the passage implies that he mourned for her the appropriate number of days, 30 days, uh, he mourned for her. And it, it doesn't necessarily say he mourned with a great hurt in his heart, but he just was carrying out the letter of the law of that day or the custom of that day. And when the 30 days was up, he returned to his normal activity. Now, we can interpret here that it probably was springtime when she died. It may have been the end of winter because there was the 30-day mourning period. But anyway, it's, it's springtime here as we read on in this passage and this event occurs because it was springtime when sheep were shorn. Through the winter, the sheep have grown a heavy wool coat to protect them. And then in the, in the springtime, the sheep are shorn because they won't need their heavy coat for the spring and the summer. And by the time uh, winter rolls around again, they'll have grown another new coat. And so it probably was springtime here. And we are told that Judah went up. Again, reminding you, as I mentioned last time, whenever up or down are used in Scripture, it means elevational 
uh, change, not north-south as we interpret it, because they didn't have maps or that understanding uh, in, in that day. So it meant that he went up. He went uphill, went up into the Judean highlands to a place called Timnah. Now, there is another place historically in Scripture called Timnah. This is not it because it doesn't fit the geographical description. But it's very common for several towns to be not really very far apart that have similar names, if not the same name. Of course, it's not unusual even in our country, right? There are a lot of towns in our country that bear uh, the same name. Well, he probably was planning to go up to what was a very popular enclosure up at Timnah, a place which was a normal gathering place for the shepherds of that region for the time of shearing. And so this was the plan. Now, we need to understand that shearing in those days, sheep shearing was like corn husking in the Midwest. It was a job that had pleasure associated with it because you gathered together with many of your friends and you worked all day and you played all night. And, and you, you did your work and then at night was singing and dancing and festivities and feasting and all the things that made this, you know, a reasonable, happy and joyous time. And so it wasn't just all drudgery. Uh, there was some joy uh, associated with this. Apparently Tamar was convinced that Judah had no plans to give her to Shelah as wife. And therefore, she decides to take matters into her, in her, into her own hands. Again, let me remind you, the Scripture simply reports what happened. The Scripture does not whitewash things. The Scripture tells it as it was. It doesn't mean because it's reported that it's condoned or that it's good. And we need to always remember that as we read through there, and I'm sure that's not news to any of us here. She was still young. And she had no desire to spend the rest of her life as a barren widow. I mean, being a barren widow is, is not usually a, 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 a position most women would choose even in our society, let alone in a society where fertility was considered to be the most important thing a woman could have. Children, bearing of children was much more important in that society than it is in ours because you weren't even a woman if you didn't bear children in the eyes of most of the people of, of that particular society. So, she heard that, she was told, we're told in this passage, that someone came and told her that your father-in-law is going to shear sheep up at Timnah. So into her mind popped a plan. It was a bold plan, but a very risky plan at the same time. She headed for a little village called Inaim. She obviously knew the geography of the area and, and she apparently knew of a shortcut whereby she could reach this village before Judah passed it. She, her plan was to intercept her father-in-law. And so she went to this place and the scripture tells us she took off her widow's garments and put on the garments of a harlot which were very obvious type garments that were worn characteristically uh, by harlots in that particular society. But we're going to have to understand here that it wasn't a normal common prostitute that she was depicting here. She dressed in the form of a cult or temple prostitute, and that will make a difference here as we read, not in the excuse or not that it made it any better, but in Judah's interpretation of what was going on and in what she was 
uh, attempting to appear to be. She veiled herself so that she wouldn't be recognized. But at the same time, the veiling was part of the costume of a cult prostitute. And certainly, the veiling also creates an aura of mystery as she would sit there by the roadside. Now, we have to remember that Judah was recently widowed. And as a result of that, he probably was a little more susceptible to the enticement than otherwise might have been true. We have no record that he had ever been to a prostitute before. We don't have any record that he hadn't either, as far as that goes. As she certainly hoped, Judah noticed her and he fell into her trap. He propositioned her and he offered her a kid from his flock. He was obviously a shepherd. Obviously, this was his wealth. And so this was the payment. What, what will you give me uh, for this, this relationship? And he says, I will give you a kid from my flock. But as he could well expect, it, be, uh, expect, they apparently didn't know each other. Of course, he had no idea who she was. She knew who he was. But as far as he was concerned, this was a total stranger uh, meeting. She had a reason to believe that he might not pay. And so she requested the pledge of him. Now, this, of course, wasn't anything that took him by surprise, apparently. Well, that's reasonable, you know. I mean, she just would worry that if this would happen and, and I went on, why, why would I ever pay? I mean, what proof did she ever have? And so it seemed reasonable to her that she might request a pledge from him. And what she wanted was, of course, something that could be clearly identified as belonging to her father-in-law, Judah. This was very, very clear. She could have asked for silver or she could have asked for gold, which he might have had with him. She didn't want that. She requested two items that bore distinct marks that meant that they belonged to Judah and to Judah alone. She asked for his seal or his signet ring, which characteristically in those days was worn on a cord around the neck. And the signet ring was his signature. And any man of substance in that society in those days possessed a signet ring. A person living in total poverty probably didn't have such a thing. He didn't even need it. But for Judah and for others of some wealth, such was very commonly carried with them. And of course, it was used then as it was many, many centuries before and since. It was used to press usually into wax to seal a document, and this indicated that this person had, in effect, signed this, putting his name to it. This meant it was genuine from him. The design on the signet ring was unique. Whatever the design was, it, it could be. Uh, sometimes it was writing. Often it was some sign, sort of a picture. You go back to the ancient uh, societies of, uh, of Babylonia and Sumer and Assyria and so forth. They used cylinder seals a lot, which were little... Uh, objects about so big, made out of stone or bone or something, in which uh, a certain design was carved, and you rolled this across clay or wax or whatever, and, and it became a signature. And, and the design was always unique. It had to be unique, uh, according to the request of the person whom it represented. And so she requested this. But, you know, it could be that 
somehow it, he could weasel out of this because it's such a little thing. He could have lost it. She could have found it. So she requested, in addition to this, his staff. Well, before we do that, let me just read a passage from Esther that illustrates something of the importance of the seal or the signet here. In Esther 3.10, you know the story very well, I think. Haman is looking for a way to destroy the Jews uh, in the Persian Empire, and so he is, has come to the king with this request. In verse 10 of Esther 3, we read, Then the king took his signet ring from his hand. Now, the ring uh, of a wealthy person was often worn on the hand, not just on a cord around the neck. And gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The silver is yours, and the people also. Do with them as you please. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the month. And it was written just as Haman commanded to the sat king's satraps, to the governors who were over uh, each province, and to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of the king Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Can you see the, can you see the scene? Haman calls in the scribes. Now we're talking about a lot of scribes because Persia had 120 satraps, satrapies. And so there had to be a spec, I mean, they had no, you couldn't just run over and put it on the copy machine and punch the button and run off 120 copies. <laughs> Everyone had to be handwritten. So you bring a whole group of scribes in here and they had to be multilingual because in some of the uh, satraps, why they spoke different languages from Persian. And so all this had to be written out. And then the seal had to be put on all these documents. The king's seal had to be put specifically on each document. And it meant the king approved this. It's the word of the king that went forward. So that was really very important to her to possess that. But also, as I mentioned a moment ago, it was important to have something a little bit bigger <laughs> that would be more obviously missed, that Judah couldn't say, well, I just misplaced it. You know, it fell off or something, because he walked with his staff all the time. And he would know the moment it was gone, and he could hardly deny that he had just uh, left it somewhere and forgotten about it, you know, for three months. So uh, the staff, which of course was the aid for walking that was used by almost everyone in those days and was also used, of course, to beat off an attacker of any kind. Just think of the days where you could actually use a stick to beat off an attacker. I mean, there weren't any guns. <laughs> you know, you had a hope at least. And, and usually the staff of somebody of some substance had on it also a special mark. Maybe the same design that was on the signet ring, but a mark that identified this staff as belonging to this person. I mean, you'd want that because if everybody put all their staffs in the staff rack, how would you know which staff to get, you know, if they were all the same? So you'd have to have this identifying mark here. Anyway, both items were uh, important, so important, that he gave them to her, but I think he was a little bit reluctant. He thought, oh, what does she want this for? You know, one's enough, isn't it? And he thought, boy, you know, <laughs> this is a little bit dangerous, but this guy suspected really no foul play here, or else he would never have given them to her at all. And he was so desirous, so anxious to get on with this relationship that he was willing to give this to her. I mean, to us, that would be almost like us handing somebody our credit card and saying, I'll pick it up later. Huh. 
you know, most of us have to be pretty stupid to do that. But this is what he's doing here. I'm not saying that she could then go around and buy everything with it, but I mean, it's that important to, to him and even more so uh, than that. Now, the details aren't given here, but we have to recognize that she must have had, she, she must have set up a tent or had somehow rented a room nearby, uh, which was pretty dark. Uh, because they went in here to have this tryst, and he did not recognize her at all during this relationship. And the scripture says she conceived. And then Judah left. So long, it's been good to know you. Probably won't ever see you again. Well, yes, I will. I brought my ring and staff back. But as soon as Judah was out of sight, Tamar packed everything up, and she was out of there. She went back home. She put on, of course, immediately put on her widow's garments. I mean, she didn't go out of wherever she was again without putting those widow's garments back on and packed up her little donkey, and she took off for her home. Verse 20. When Judah set, sent the kid, the, the little goat, by his friend the Adolamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of her place, that is that place, that town, saying, where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at Enam? But they said, there has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep them, lest we become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this kid, but you did not find her. Now, the scripture tells us back in the beginning part, well, let's see, what verse was it? Um, oh, verse 12, at the end of it, it says that Judah went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adolamite. Sounds like they were traveling together, which means Hira would have been there. And Hira would have had to go cool his heels under the tree while, while Judah was doing his thing here. And, and then they went on up the hill to Timnah as if nothing had happened. Now, there is no evidence that Judah, of course, is having any concern about being a witness here <laughs> to this Canaanite. Uh, obviously, it was not important to him because what he had just done obviously was no witness to this pagan Canaanite. They spent probably a week or two shearing the sheep, having their festivities. But you know, back in the back of Judah's mind was this nagging thought, a gal's got my ring and staff. <laughs> I don't think he had as much fun at his festivities as he might have otherwise had because back in the back of his mind, that was nagging him. And as soon as possible, Hira apparently was done with whatever he was going to do, and he was going to return home early. And so Judah said, hey, would you take the kid with you, the, the little goat, and, and would you stop by down there, you know where to go, and, and turn the kid in and get my ring and staff back? Hira said, fine, I'll be glad to do that. And uh, he went down there. It was obvious that Judah was a little anxious because Judah would have been coming himself, certainly a few days later, maybe even the next day, who knows? Well, probably not the next day because Hira came back up and he was still there, but sometime soon. Uh, but he was very, very concerned, obviously, about his ring and his staff. 
But the scripture tells us Hira came down and he searched the place and couldn't find the woman. And rather than just running back saying, I couldn't find her, he decided I'm going to make sure that Judah doesn't think I'm a jerk here by not checking out. So he asked everybody, where, where is the temple prostitute that was over here? And they said, we haven't seen anybody like that. There is no temple prostitute in a name or in this area. And there hasn't been one recently. Think about it for a moment. This tells us something about Tamar. Tamar was obviously carefully watching for Judah. Because this thing happened so quickly, nobody else in the area saw her. She apparently hid out, kind of watching for Judah. And when she saw him coming, then she ran out and sat down real quick. Made it look pretty casual as, as he came along. She didn't want to be sitting out there for hours waiting for him to come along and have other people come along and see her and proposition her and so forth. And so she obviously was very, very careful about this whole thing. So Hira asked around and got a blank wall wherever he turned. Now, what's very important about this particular passage here is it gives us an understanding of, of how she appeared. Because when you go back into the first passage, uh, there, in verse 16, it just says, he thought she was a harlot. That passage wouldn't give us any understanding of what he really thought she was. It's Hira here who gives us an understanding when he says, where is the temple prostitute that was here? And the word there is different from the word in the previous passage. This Hebrew word means the set-apart or consecrated one. Now, a common harlot was not considered to be set apart or consecrated, not even in Canaanite society. But there were these who were considered cult prostitutes, by the way, both male and female. She was not seen by Judah as a common harlot. She was seen as a woman fulfilling her vow to Ashtart, the fertility goddess of women in that particular area. Um, not that that made any difference, really, to Judah. But, you know, he could probably pass it off and say, well, you know, this is something she's supposed to be doing, so it would be okay. Uh, these fertility gods were very, very common in the Canaanite world. Baal, or Baal, and Ashtart were considered to be consorts. Um, sort of like Juno and Hera amongst the, uh, I mean, uh, Zeus and, and Juno. In, in the ancient uh, Greek world, world, Jupiter and Juno, who were supposed to be husband and wife, kind of the king and queen of heaven. And so, so it is here. Now, both Baal and Ashtar were fertility gods. And their blessing, the Canaanites believed, was absolutely necessary for crops to grow, for animals to produce, and for people to produce. And if you don't have the blessing of Baal and Ashtar, you're in big trouble. Now, what is interesting and sad is that some societies that were committed to this worship basically required every woman at some point, usually early in her life, from teen on in those younger years, to commit a period of time to cult prostitution. This was considered necessary to guarantee the woman's fertility which was absolutely essential in that society. 
So Tamar's actions were not suspicious to Judah. He had seen temple prostitutes many times. And so she was not an unusual sight. He was accustomed to seeing such. Now, in judging Tamar's actions, we need to bear in mind four things which I think are noted on your outline there. First of all, we need to remember Tamar was a Canaanitess. There is no indication that she knew or had submitted to the God of Jacob. There is no indication that Judah had in any way been a blessing, a witness to her, or that he was even capable of being such, given the lifestyle he had been living and whom he had married and the sons he had raised. And so in her society, what she had done would have been considered right and honorable. Secondly, her motive for doing what she had done was neither lust nor money. Her motive was to force Judah to fulfill his promise. Now that, of course, doesn't make it right in God's eyes. But again, this seemed to make it right in the society of her day and could be used as an excuse, at least culturally. Because if, she, if he did not fulfill the vow and she would go on in life childless, and husbandless, she might be forced into common prostitution just to survive or into total destitution. Thirdly, God made it very, very clear from the very beginning that sexual relationships were to be carried out between a husband and a wife only. This is obvious, and we spent a little time last week talking about, you know, when is the right, uh, what is right about sexual relationships, and why God even created this sexual relationship be to, to begin with, and we spent a little time with that uh, last week, so we won't go back over that. But the specific law against cult prostitution would not be given for another 500 years. Let's, let's turn to it and look at it in Deuteronomy chapter 23. Now, probably most of you are familiar with the fact that as you read through parts of the Pentateuch, it's, they're, they're kind of ghastly. But again, that's because God knew the human heart. And God dealt with the issues that he knew would be there. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 17, None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, nor shall any of the sons of Israel be a cult prostitute, Period. That's the end of it. They are never to do this. Number 18. You shall not bring the hire of a harlot or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God for any votive offering, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, first of all, it, as a point of clarification, the term dog there is the, the term dog, whenever it's used in the Old Testament, is always used in a negative sense. It always means something despicable. And in this case, what we're talking about is two factors, the dog-like position of a sodomite 
And secondly, if you turn back to Revelation 22, it tells us that outside the kingdom of God are the dogs, which means the vile persons, clearly. And so what we're talking about here is male cult prostitutes in this uh, 18th uh, verse where it says dogs. And you'll notice it also says that you're not even to bring the money thus earned in as an offering to the, to the Lord, which to me is a statement that God is not interested in the wealth, the tithe, or any kind of income from vile activity. It is not consecrated just because it's given to God. And that's one of the reasons why, for example, many Christian organizations will not accept money if they know that that money comes out of any kind of criminal activity. Even, even including gambling. It, I, I'm constantly reminded, this is always so interesting to me, and I, I've probably mentioned it before, but years ago, uh, reading uh, one of the accounts written by Billy Graham, he talked about Mickey Cohen. And Mickey Cohen was a gangster in Southern California. And uh, Mickey Cohen came to Billy Graham's crusade. And Mickey Cohen was very, very touched by Billy Graham. And he talked with Billy Graham about uh, becoming a Christian. And uh, Billy Graham, you know, talked to him. This is how you have to. But he said, I don't want to stop being a gangster. <laughs> he says, I want to be, you know, there are Christian baseball players and Christian football players. Why can't there be a Christian gangster, you know? <laughs> and uh, Billy Graham says, uh, it just doesn't work that way, you know? And uh, unfortunately, Mickey Cohen was not convinced enough to give up his gangsterhood to accept Christ. But, uh, you know, even the, the money, money is, ta is tainted and, and is not made good simply because it's offered in the house of the Lord. I think that speaks to us today. I, I hope, of course, that none of us has tainted money. But we need to always be aware of the fact that if we have acquired money through some means other than that which is perfectly honorable before the Lord, he is not interested in the tithe off that money. <laughs> and, and it's not a blessing to the house of, uh, of the Lord. It doesn't make it okay. I, I know all of you are mature enough to understand that, but there are those, even in the Christian community, who do not have the maturity to understand that. Now, fourthly, Again, God does not condone at any point. He never condones immoral activity. But what this passage illustrates to us is the grace of the Almighty. God is gracious. And because of his graciousness, twins were born to this woman. And one of those twins would be the father of the ancestor to David the king and ultimately to Messiah. In Matthew, the first chapter, we have, of course, the recounting of the ancestry, the human ancestry of Messiah. Let me just read the first few verses there because to me it's, it's really interesting. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, to Abraham was born Isaac, to Isaac Jacob, and to Jacob, notice, Judah and his brothers. I mean, there were 12 brothers. Judah was the fourth. <laughs> Judah and his brothers, not Reuben and his brothers. 
not even Joseph and his brothers. Of the twelve, Joseph was the only one who seemed from the beginning to really walk with God. And it doesn't say Joseph in it. It says Judah, the jerk we're reading about. And to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. I mean, her name appears in this list. And to Perez were born Hezron, and to Hezron, Ram, and to Ram was born Aminadab, and to Aminadab, Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab, and to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth. And to Obed, Jesse, and to Jesse was born David the king. And Jesus was called the son of David. This list is an expression of the mercy and grace of God. Because not only do you have Tamar in there, but you have Rahab, a Canaanite harlot. I mean, she was a common harlot. She wasn't even a temple harlot. You know, whatever difference that made. And, and you have a Moabitess in here, Ruth. What does that tell us? It doesn't tell us that God, you know, condones immorality. It tells us that the grace of God is greater than our sin. He's a God of great grace. He is gracious. I don't know if that impacts you, but it impacts me because I know that I walk through each day, uh, you know, it's very difficult to walk through each day without sin somehow encroaching upon my life. An attitude, a thought, a word, which is not what Christ would have said or thought or done in that situation. And so, the grace of God is greater than the sin. And we need to remember at the same time, as Paul said, that doesn't mean, therefore, we should go out and sin so that God's grace can abound more. He says, not. We should seek to walk with God in the right way, to be obedient to Him and to let sin fall away. But it inevitably will come because we are humans in a fallen situation. And therefore, we need to be realists and understand what life is really about here. And when we look at this passage, we have to see it through this same interpretation. What Judah did was wrong. What Tamar did was wrong. There was nothing right about either of their activities. Simply because Judah had not fulfilled his vow didn't mean God said, okay, Tamar, go down and seduce your father-in-law. Not at all. That was her choice. But through it all, God brought good. Because if he didn't, there never would have been a Messiah. Because everybody in this list was a sinner. And, and whether we cast dispersions at Rahab or Tamar, none of us really stands in our own strength before God any more righteous than she or they. We all are as guilty in our flesh. All equally in need of cleansing. Because in the case of Tamar, she simply did it, whereas many others would have thought it, which Jesus clearly indicated was the same. Well, when Hira couldn't find the temple prostitute, Judah called off the search. He felt that 
the ridicule he would receive by trying to find this process. Oh, where is he? Where is she? You know, do you know where she went? Feel like a fool, you know, running around the countryside trying to find a prostitute. That uh, it would be better just to forget his ring and his, and his staff and just count it as loss. You know, he could always go and have a new ring and a new staff made with a new symbol. Sort of like you could go and have a new credit card made with a new number and, and order your old one canceled. Now, part of his feeling of foolishness would derive from the fact that most of the people in that area probably knew he was an alien. This is no Canaanite. And what, you know, there, there's no indication that he had any testimony to the real God, but certainly he was obviously not a worshiper of the Canaanite gods. At least he didn't go through with all of that, apparently. And so I, I think on top of it, he had a, some of it a guilty conscience, uh, you know. I think because of what happens later to Judah, he had not seared his conscience beyond the ability to be touched by God. And so I think he had a little bit of a guilty conscience here, and he began to feel a little bit like a hypocrite. After all, he did try to fulfill his pledge. He did send the kid, goat, but the woman was gone. So I think he just said, I hope the ring and staff are gone forever. I'll never see it again. It won't come back to haunt me. Whoa. Verse 24, now it was about three months later when Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. Behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Righteous man is he. It was while she was being brought out that she sent her father-in-law to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these belong. <laughs> and she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. <laughs> and Judah recognized them, certainly, and said, she is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again. Three months have passed. I don't think Judah has forgotten his ring and staff. I think he's still bugged about the fact that he lost those things, and I think he thought, what a dimwit. I'll never do that again. Now, how did anybody find out this woman was pregnant? She's only three months pregnant. They wore loose-fitting clothes in those days, and, and you know, even if she had begun to show early, she wouldn't have been noticed. How did she find, how did anybody find out? Well, it's possible she had morning sickness and others, ladies, understood the signs very well or that she foolishly told someone. Well, maybe not so foolishly. Maybe she knew it was going to come out pretty soon here and therefore the sooner the better she got this thing in the open. Well, as the passage indicates, it was immediately assumed there's only one way this woman could be pregnant and that's by harlotry. There's no other option. Well, even though she's living in her father's house, she is under her father-in-law's authority. He had the legal authority to execute her for unchastity. In spite of Judah's delay in giving his son Shelah to Tamar, she was nevertheless under contract and considered in that society a married woman. And so she had violated her contract by becoming pregnant, obviously, by some other man. 
The law of that day was very harsh towards women who commit adultery. Historically, unfortunately for women, the laws have always been more harsh on the women than on the men. The only time it wasn't was in the agreed-upon case of cult prostitution where it was right and good and, and it wasn't considered adultery. It was an agreed-upon thing, and the husband knew about it if, if she were already married, and therefore there was no, there, there's no stigma attached to that. But on the other hand, the law was fairly mild towards adulterous husbands. In fact, in the pagan society we're talking about here, uh, male promiscuity was considered to be normal and accepted and expected. Especially, it was virtuous if that involved a cult prostitute. I mean, you were making your contribution to the fertility of the society. You were worshiping the gods. That's one of the reasons why the Canaanite religion was so heinous and why God was so stringent and strong to Israel about do not associate with those people because that sin will creep in and destroy your society. You will not change it in that sense. You will change it only by living for me and being an example to them. But if you try to mess with them and, and, and uh, you know, be hypocritical in their midst, it will not work. I think Judah thought, whoa, here's an opportunity to get rid of this gal. I was afraid to give Sheila to her because I think she's jinxed. And so this will give me an opportunity to get rid of her. But you know, the order seems to be pretty harsh. Burn her. That's kind of nasty. God later <laughs> gave it a little bit fairer law. And uh, I guess we'll have to come to a conclusion with this. But in Deuteronomy 22, well, it's fair in that the woman is not alone blamed. I, I'm not indicating that being stoned to death is a whole lot more pleasant than being burned to death. I've never experienced either, uh, but I don't know, it seems like it might be a little bit better. But anyway, the fairness is seen in verse 20. But if this charge is true, that the girl was found not a virgin, then they shall bring out the girl to the doorway of her father's house, and the men of the city shall stone her to death, because she has committed an act of folly in Israel by playing the harlot in her father's house. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. Thus you shall purge evil out of Israel. If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both to the gate of the city, and you shall stone them both to death, the girl because she did not cry out in the city, and the man because he had violated his neighbor's wife. Thus you shall purge evil from among Israel." But if in the field the man finds the girl, the girl who is engaged and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the girl. There is no sin in the girl worthy of death, for just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. When he found her in the field, the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. See, God brings fairness to the situation. God deals with sin as sin. And he doesn't say it's this person's fault, but not that person's fault. 
And that's what you see in the vileness of Canaanite pagan society. It's a male-dominated society, and the men get away with murder, and the women are the ones who are murdered. And God would not have it that way. And you'll notice in this, this last case, it would be only the man who would die because there's nobody to prove that she didn't cry out because she couldn't have been heard out in the field. And then in Leviticus, we, we won't take time to turn to it, but uh, burning was reserved only for the most heinous crimes, such as incest, for example, and cult prostitution. Those things were considered heinous crimes, and um, burning was reserved for that. He ordered her to be burned. Obviously, this man has not yet met his God in a way that would change his life. And he shows no mercy at a point when he was in himself desperately in need of that mercy. But what we're going to see next week as we finish this passage is that God begins to work in Judah's life. And God begins to change him. And that's going to make a difference to him. And it's going to make a difference to what happens in Israel. And it's going to make the difference that will allow him to be Judah and his brothers in the first chapter of Matthew.